All right, welcome to episode 15 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I am joined by uh, a gentleman who's tied for my most frequent guest on the show. Uh, This is Tom Ratzlaff's third appearance. And we're talking about black and white films. And this was an idea you had after we finished our last show on drive-in movies. So why did you want to explore uh, movies with black and white photography? Well, I could for fun just say, because I'm that old. Black and white white can be a technique. It can be a means of making a statement, just like any other element of, of filmmaking or any art form. Uh, light and shadow can be very, very powerful. And some, some directors and cinematographers use it extremely well. The same can be said for black and white being used very well, just as well as light and, and shadow. So I think it's worth exploring. Also, some of my favorite movies are black and white movies because I grew up loving Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. So there's a soft spot. Yeah, it's a bit of a nostalgia factor, I guess, huh? Yeah. I, when I was growing up, it seemed like if a movie was in black and white, it was too old and it wasn't worth (laughs) seeing, you know, like the the stupid way you think when you're growing up. And speak for yourself. (laughs) I'm not sure when it changed for me. And I'm not sure if I ever completely believe that because I, I still kind of like watching uh, some black and white TV shows that would still air periodically during my childhood. Uh, and as I've gotten older, I appreciate it more and more. I, I think I can be impressed with a movie in black and white sometimes more than I can with a color film. What we're looking at is six movies here, three of which were made in a time when it was common for films to be in black and white. And then what I admire is like beyond that, when we start looking at, we have one movie from the 70s and two from the 90s, where it's a very specific choice by the director and likely the director of photography to go with black and white uh, as a means to tell a story. I think it, it, it works quite well for the three, I'll call them contemporary, even though 1998 was a while ago and that's the uh, newest movie we're looking at uh, in this show today. Yeah. So I, I kind of admire when, when contemporary filmmakers make that choice. And often the, uh, the results are, are fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think all all six of these movies have moments which look really good. There was that awful movement. I don't know if you remember last last show with Lee Beckman. We talked about uh, how uh, Ted Turner buried the 1996 movie Crash, Cronenberg's Crash. Ted Turner also had his movie network, and his idea was that oh nobody's going to watch an old black and white film, so let's colorize all of these classic films, including you know Casablanca yeah. and, and movies like that. Were that which were never meant to have color photography. The results were dreadful. Well, they they are. I mean, one of the one, one of the, the decisions that's made early on is to go with color or black and white. And once that decision is made, all of the other related artistic choices depend on that factor, right? The lighting director has to know that it's going to be black and white as opposed to color, and has to light things differently for a black and white movie. If you colorize that, you're going to get something that doesn't look quite right. I mean. Even if your ability to colorize is very accurate and very natural, it's still not going quite right. The six movies we're looking at, John Huston's Key Largo. Then we're going to look at Tennessee Williams, but A Streetcar Named Desire. Then we're going to look at Touch of Evil. We're going to be looking at the special edition director's cut. Then we're moving into the 1970s with The Last Picture Show. And then we're going to take a look at Tim Burton's 1994 biopic of Ed Wood. And we're going to end it off. It's starting to become a tradition to have a Woody Allen movie when you're on. Woody Allen's 19. 1998 film.
film Celebrity, which as always, there will likely be spoilers for the six movies that we talk about. My name is Frank McCloud. I'm about 12 miles off Boot Key Harbor on my way in. Over. Hold your course. You're headed straight for Key Largo. Key Largo. the coast of Florida, sultry, heat-ridden, cloaked in the strange menace of the sea. But stranger still is the destiny that brings these people to this remote outpost, to be held at bay with a price on their lives, by a man with a price on his head. Nothing to stop me from wiping you all out. What good will that do, boss? Forget it. Her kind's a dime a dozen. I say smack her and let it go at that. Smacking her isn't enough for such an insult. He'd have to kill her. Then he'd have to kill the rest of us because we witnessed it. But to kill us all or nothing. We rid ourselves of your kind once and for all. You ain't coming back. Who's gonna stop me, old man? Filth. You filth. I won't let you go without me. You've got to take me. You've got to. Now get You've away got from me. Smell blood, huh? Got your appetite up. You can make your hopes come true. But you gotta die for it. See what I'm aiming? Right at your belly. Go ahead, shoot. Get away, sister. Get away, Nora. We're starting off in the 1940s. I'm going to mention some names to you, and I think this is an impressive list. John Houston, Richard Brooks. We also have Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, and we have Edward G. Robinson. They are behind Key Largo. Bogart plays a man who's coming by to visit his war buddy's family's hotel. He stumbles upon a really weird situation in the hotel where it turns out that there's a gangster played by Edward G. Robinson who happens to have taken over and are kind of holding people hostage, not immediately, but as the story goes along, and a hurricane approaches as happens in the Florida Keys. Both Bogart and Robinson end up having a, a confrontation with each other throughout. And that's the setup for Key Largo, a movie the first time I saw it was on, I just caught it on television. I didn't catch it from the beginning, but it was kind of in the middle of things. I thought, well, this looks interesting. And I was intrigued by it. And I, I really wanted to see the whole thing. And I was happy years later where I spotted a, a Humphrey Bogart collection where Key Largo was one of the films and I've watched it several times and I enjoy it every time and so uh, it'll be a generally positive review for me but uh, Tom what do you think of uh, Key Largo? Well uh, these are all good films and finding reasons to uh, hit them against each other is <laughs> difficult I found myself with all of them doing what I also did with Key Largo which honestly was I believe the second film I watched of these six I was 
re-watching them this time, I mean. I found myself right from the beginning being picky about little things. Early on, uh, there's some physical action that to me looked very under-rehearsed. Mm -hmm. And of course, filmmakers sometimes are in a hurry to get to a finished, in a hurry to put a scene in the can. They've got producers nipping at their heels, budget reason. So I can understand why it happened, but it still, it surprised me actually in a John Huston film. Uh, I know this is an earlier John Huston film, but let's face it, his earliest, I believe, was the Maltese Falcon, wasn't it? Pretty high bar to start with. It was certainly one of the early ones. So that surprised me. And also, it's in the early part of the film, it is kind of slow. It takes a while. It's trying to build suspense, but it's almost as though it's trying too hard to build suspense. There was one point, I have to read you my note here. Uh, there's one point it felt like they were trying, very intent on using silence. I wrote, come on, this isn't Pinter. It's, uh, it, it was just too slow early on. And yet, I think it's a very good film. I mean, some of the acting in it is very strong. Bogart and Robinson together would have to be either a total disaster because they keep trying to outdo each other or a great success because they have their characters trying to outdo each other. They work well together. And of course, they made several films together. It was at least they four. They, they went way back before Bogart was a leading. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because Bogart was yeah. the heavy in a lot of those those early film noirs. Um, yeah. And he was quite effective at, at playing those roles too. Oh, absolutely. He's He was the best at it. There's a reason why everybody remembers the Maltese Falcon. Everybody remembers uh, so many bogey films that his name is synonymous with film noir, really, I think. Robinson, too, played so many villains that you would think it would just be a, a, a mailed-in performance, but it isn't. This one in particular, I found him really interesting. He was a quieter, tough guy, very yeah. much quieter. He was a more sinister, tough guy because he'd smile more. You know, I thought it was an excellent performance, Robinson. I, it might be his best yeah. performance. I mean, I think there's a real well, argument maybe. for it because it had the nuances that in the early days, he was just the hothead, the heavy. The, it, yeah. It's kind of like when people were remarking about how good Joe Pesci is in The Irishman because they had been so used to his reactionary gangster. And this was an older, more methodical type of mafioso that, that Pesci was playing. Similar thing here. Here. like it, this time he's the yeah. dawn he's not he's not the, the muscle doing the work right well of course the film is melodramatic yes that's because it is a melodrama and it's quite legit to be melodramatic in a melodrama you can still go over the top with it that's where i have a criticism not of most of the cast but of oddly enough the one who won the academy award for best supporting actress particularly early in the film her drunk woman is very much an acted drunk woman and it's not credible at all good melodrama has to, maybe has to try even harder to be credible in order for a melodrama to work and be good at the genre. It's it's tougher to hold the audience's suspension of disbelief when everybody kind of knows this isn't how life really works most of the time, you know. And early on, that's a failing in her performance. And yet she has some very strong scenes, almost wondering whether because the two problems, the physical action being under-rehearsed, slow suspense, and the early part of her performance all seem to be the, the weakest in the beginning of the film. I'm wondering if they didn't film those scenes at the end when they were out of money and out of time and so did a more hurried job I have no idea but yeah, I'm not curious to find well, out because as the, the um, movie the middle and, and the end of the movie but particularly the middle of the film is so much better than I, I think I was used to seeing this at that that era with, with stage fights very choreographed and you could see the choreography I'm even thinking of some sequences in Casablanca which is one of the great movies of all time mm -hmm. where, where where there would be some action but it still it still 
felt and, and a lot of film noirs as well were like this with like the slap and the gangster slapping the person and there's some of those scenes True. in here too where you, you kind of hear the sound effect and how how it was done you could see that a little bit more so that might have been also a little bit of a uh, the age of the film type of thing yeah yeah it's it's always easy to criticize in retrospect but we have to remember that artists do learn over time techniques mm -hmm. do improve and we're talking about fight choreography improving the actual execution of fights improving better training no we're talking about uh, um, more advanced filming techniques and equipment to do it with and we're talking about frankly better editing equipment too so all of those are reasons probably why things look better today as far as stage combat or sorry film combat just that it was all of the physical action in some of those early scenes um it looks like an early rehearsal you've just blocked it and now the actors are just trying to get a bill for or physically being in the room and relating to one another even that early on found a little questionable but. i think that and that, that sequence is in uh in a hotel uh room which is a very cramped space for a lot of the action that's happening once once they're down at the the lobby and the bar area and the yeah. hotel, I think they have a little bit more room to to be able to be successful with some of the the action um, that happens there. I, like I don't want this to to turn into like the Rebecca review or, or anything like that because we're maybe not as far. <laughs> no, no, we're not far with that one. As but I said, I, I was looking specifically. I found myself looking at kind of details when I look at the bigger picture of yeah. the film Key Largo. Uh, I'm I'm very positive about it and i definitely think people it, it's worth seeing uh, for a lot of reasons including houston's direction even though it sounds like i'm being critical of some of his yeah. direction actually i felt like i was trying to apologize for it coming up with excuses like they were low on money and low on time when they yeah. shot those things it almost feel that way like when you, when you like a movie you know and there, there's a few things there and I, I just I think maybe of of the six that we're looking at this one feels the oldest it is the oldest yeah, but yeah. it also feels the oldest but really it was uh, only a few years between it and streetcar named desire which we're going to talk about shortly yeah. and the physical action in streetcar named desire even though it's a different context completely seems very very tight and very realistic yeah mind yeah. you it came out of a, a major stage production that almost everybody well, this was based on this was based on a, a stage production wasn't it based on a play as yeah. well yeah it was it was uh... bogart and bacall and 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 robinson weren't in the stage production no. like, like no. in, in streetcar with the when we get to that exception of Vivian Lee, most of the cast was was in um, in the, the New York production. But Vivian Lee had been in the London production. She'd been in London production, yeah. not the New York one. Yeah. And she just hadn't worked with Brando and, oh. and everybody. But yeah, we'll talk so, about that. Williams, I'm guessing. But here, they maybe didn't have the advantage of that. Plus, I, I don't think Houston directed the uh, the stage version either. Because he was, he was a film guy. Oh, I don't think so. No. Film, yeah. guy, film guy. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to... If you want to... It's adapted from it now i haven't seen i'm not familiar with the play's script but i'm guessing quite a bit was changed from the play's script. but just, just knowing that it was based on a play i didn't know that when i watched the film i found that out when i did a little digging afterward and i was surprised which kind of suggests that houston did a good job it didn't feel like trying to convert some felt you know it felt original yeah it wasn't a talking so, head movie i mean there, no, there were yeah. a lot of conversations and maybe that contributed to that kind of slow build that you're referring to yeah, yeah. i as i mentioned in my review uh, I, I reviewed the exorcist last episode i kind of like that slow build up 
up. I, I think filmmakers and screenwriters are in a giant rush now to get to the action and don't take the time anymore. I think Key Largo takes the time to introduce all of these characters. Some of the characters are kind of stock characters, but others we, once things get, get kind of dangerous, we already know these people. Oddly enough, they, I think one of the last people to appear is Edward G. Robinson. They talk about him and it's a little bit of a buildup. It's not quite as yeah. dramatic as, say, uh, Orson Welles appearing in uh, The Third Man or mm-hmm. Brando appearing at the end of Apocalypse Now. But but it's kind of like the first okay. act of the movie happens without Robinson. And Robinson really has the the role of the film, I think, you know, yeah. in yeah. many ways. But I... Certainly I, elevates it, yeah. I think when you were talking about how his his approach is different than some of his earlier film noirs where I think this was very effective. It was a good playoff of, of, Claire Trevor, who won the Academy Award, it was the performance you were talking about, which you found was a bit big. Um, Early on. The, there's a scene different. which is, like, for the time, just absolutely torturous, where he forces her to sing for everybody. Yes. And she she's lost her voice. You know, too many years of boozing and the lifestyle she's been in and all of this stuff. And he, he tortured and humiliates her in front of everybody. And I think the two of them together are really good in that scene. But also the thing that I'm, the reason I cling to that scene so much is who are the ones who got her into this world and this lifestyle? Like she was this talented singer who maybe could have gone further but she got in with these gangsters who gave her the booze and led her down this path and now are making fun of her because this is this is you know past her you know best before date in their world it's really horrible and you understand why she drinks all the time because she she's just suffering so the early scenes i think were there's no point where we really see her sober in the film and so i feel like her being there like she's already drunk and she's kind of flirting with the bogart character when when he when he arrives at the hotel and all that's going on i i think there's some screams some moments there i i I get where you're saying that's a little bit almost maybe playing might be better on the stage almost than um than on film but i i don't disagree with the fact that she got nominated for an academy award i'm not sure who else was against her for that year but i think her and robinson performances bogart's bogart but great (laughs) but this is a different bogart too it's a different bogart for sure, uh, and I mean, there's moments where you you know some something's coming here, but he he's quite restrained in what he does as well. Yeah. Um, and like he's just one of these guys. I mean, you're never not aware that you're watching Humphrey Bogart. We talk about folks like George, George Clooney now or um, Harrison Ford, or but there there's certain uh, movie stars and actors, even Pitt, even though he does change himself sometimes a little bit but you're still aware it's Brad Pitt when you're when you're watching him but there's just something some special charisma that that actors like Bogart have that you don't really care. You're just so glad <laughs> Humphrey Bogart in this movie. Well, and he's yeah. very good in it. He is. Unlike in most of his other films, he either plays hero or he plays an anti-hero. Yeah. In this particular film, his character is a textbook example of the reluctant hero. And I think he plays it perfect. He just finds himself in this situation. He's he's just doing the right thing by visiting his, his war buddy's family to yeah. give them some peace about what happened over there as much as, as he can. And then he finds himself in this situation that he didn't ask for, but he's not going to leave the hotel owner who's um, he, he's in a wheelchair. But he's a feisty fellow. Like, I like that character yeah. a lot. And, and Lauren Bacall, who is the widow with 
with these dangerous men who who knows what the, what they're going to do. If I was to criticize something in the film, I I don't think as much as I like Lauren Bacall, and I don't think she does a bad job, but she doesn't have much of a role. No, but of course she also doesn't doesn't do all that much with what she has. And when you see the more mature Lauren Bacall, and you know ever since pretty much, what you see is she could take a, a role that was a nothing role and actually do something with it. But so it's her big break. I don't the- understand why. It didn't happen here, but maybe the only explanation is that she didn't have the experience at this point. But she had been in movies before. I mean, her big with uh, a big sleep with Bogart, and she steals that movie from Bogart. And and so I I don't know. I, it would have been to me interesting, even though I maybe they had some rule that the two of them had to be love interests in every movie that they were in together. But it would have been interesting to see Bacall play the drunk gangster girlfriend and see what she would yeah, have yeah. done with that. Although at the time she was too young, probably. Yeah. She, yeah, she looked and she looks, forget how long young she looks because she spent so many years to me, uh, you know, being, you know, middle-aged to older. Right. And so, uh, <laughs> but always looking younger than she is. Yeah. I, I really like he Largo. I'm not sure how many people listening to this have seen it because some, there is a, a real hesitation to see um, black and white movies and movies that are older than, you know, yeah. some of 2010, you know, is a stretch for some a generation of moviegoers. But I really think people should check it out. I me too. It's entertaining uh, from start to finish. I like the suspense. I like the tension in the third act when uh, it moves out of the hotel and onto onto this boat uh, with, with Robinson. Like I, I even when I saw it the second time, I guess I hadn't remembered what had happened. So I, I, I had, I, I had a different idea of how the ending actually worked. I've now watched it four or five times now, so I, I. I know how the ending goes, but I still feel a certain level of suspense there. They, they don't solve things in an easy way. Um, no. Uh, it's, you know, I, I suppose I could paint a little bit of a criticism of the, the last scene with that phone call and that, that felt, and the big music score comes up at the end. That felt a little bit Hollywood of the time. But for the most part, this is a really interesting story that um, was quite good for the late 40s and for 2020. the Critics' Award, the most revealing play ever written. New York, London, Paris, Brussels, Rome, all cheered it. It's an even greater motion picture. This is the story of a woman, Blanche Dubois, who wanted so much to stay a lady. A vivid, vibrant, exciting story, because every searching chapter was written by men. Men who taught her to trust and to hope, to love and to hate. The youth who brought remembrance of yesterday. The man who was willing to take her out of the dark alleys of New Orleans. The brute who lied and cheated, who promised everything, gave nothing. Don't you ever talk that way to me. Disgusting, vulgar, greasy. But who do you think you are, a couple of queens or something? Could it be you and me, Blanche? Uh, what does it cost for a single phrase like that? Why, well, well, these are tribute from an admirer of mine. 
Well, he must have had a lot of admiration. Lies! Lies inside and out! All lies! Never inside! I never lied in my heart! Plenty room to get by me now. Come on. You think I'm going to interfere with you? Marry me, Mitch. I don't think I want to marry anymore. Oh, you're not clean enough to bring in a house with money. Oh, Streetcar Named Desire is no doubt a classic. And I think in many ways it changed film acting. I The argument last episode, I, I reviewed uh, Last Tango in Paris with Lee. And I talked I talked about how I, I think as far as Brando, he was the method actor. And how his diva-esque behavior became very difficult from some point in the 70s onward. But I kind of feel like as far as his approach to film acting, we can go back to Last Tango in Paris and Streetcar Named Desire and say... It worked really really well in both of these performances people said that Brando changed film acting because of his portrayal of Stanley Kowalski but everybody is good in this movie and it's it's really interesting it it won three Academy Awards and the person who was left off was Brando himself from uh, winning best actor otherwise they would have had all four which would have been unreal the other thing that was interesting a Canadian Jessica Tandy played Blanche Dubois on Broadway but they, I guess I guess they she wasn't even kind of the second choice for the role for the film they were going for uh olivia de Havilland. i think was was originally they were looking at then her husband at the time said she shouldn't do the role and they ended up with vivian lee who as you mentioned was in the london production of streetcar named desire uh at the time uh, married to Lawrence olivier and i i always feel like like she just she's just so so good in this film she's also partially responsible for people saying that this role is little bit cursed because uh, you know she had some mental health issues and i guess the later part of her life she was having trouble separating herself from the blanche dubois character it's like a little bit of a hollywood urban legend like the heath ledger was never yeah. he became the joker and he got too deep into character type of thing but vivian lee was not a method actor so you have Brando, Brando and 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 malden and um and uh and kim hunter i believe they were all from the same method lee came in and 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 she was a technical British actor and didn't approach things that way. I think initially there was some tension, but things really, really worked out. And their different approaches to acting, but their their chemistry on sc- screen is is something else. Uh, if you don't know the story of a streetcar named Desire, it's basically Blanche Dubois has uh, landed in uh, New Orleans in this small apartment with her sister Stella, played uh, played 
played by Kim Hunter, and and her sister's husband, who she hadn't met before this, Stanley Kowalski. And the Dubois had come from money, and now this was very much not what Blanche was expecting. And things get really, really heated as there seems to be a struggle between Blanche and Stanley uh, for Stella's affections, and some have argued on a more spiritual level, it's a battle for her soul between kind of an angel and devil figure, this base caveman uh, who goes with his instincts and he will grunt and he will mumble and he will throw things around, but he is obviously just incredibly attract. This attracts Stella, but also they fight and everybody in the quarter knows that they're fighting. And Blanche wants to get her, her sister out of that, out of there. And she has, and she has problems of her own and she talks too much. Stanley knows exactly what Blanche is doing and it becomes a battle between the two of them. It's also important in here, um, I think, to mention the great Carl Malden. Yes. Uh, terrific, again, another terrific uh, Canadian actor uh, who is part of the stage production. He worked with Brando a lot. He's in On the Waterfront. Uh, I think The Birdman of Alcatraz was another one that he was in. So Carl Malden was, uh, is amazing and he plays Stanley's buddy who is attracted to, to Blanche and the, they go on some dates together, but he doesn't really know what's going on. And he's a little bit puritanical and when the truth comes out, then we see the other side of this. And like the sweet boy next door turns into a bit of a base animal, not to the level of of, uh, of Stanley. So all of these factors are happening in, the movie feels very cinematic, even though it does spend most of its time in this house and slightly outside of the house. And I, I, I just think it's in a remarkable achievement, well-directed by Elia Kazan, who I know was a controversial figure because when it came to the McCarthy hearings, he ratted out some people so yeah. that he would be accused of being a communist, and that was a black mark on his career. Yet, uh, he he really was a, a, a great film director, directed East of Eden, and yeah, I think I, I think he also he directed On the Waterfront as well. So, but I think all the stars came together for this one. It was a, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning play, amazing hit in Broadway and in London, and it worked as one of the great films of the year. I, I don't know why it didn't win Best Picture. But I, I have to see who beat Brando, but um, yeah, I think there and which there's, film. There's maybe more of an argument, a controversial statement here, but I think there's more of an argument for Brando to win Best Actor for this than for The Godfather. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of Brando's career, this film became uh, maybe on the waterfront, but no, I think this Stanley Kowalski is probably the most famous role he played. Yeah, yeah. But of course, the role itself was already famous. Mm -hmm. That uh, Streetcar Named Desire was was not William's first gigantic hit no. on Broadway, which meant he was already known as the greatest playwright of the 20th century. And I think this is one of his best plays. And uh, for them to make this film be as, as successful as it was, I think it was a very wise decision to bring together as many people as possible who were already thoroughly, thoroughly familiar with the play. Uh, mm -hmm. Doing something like this is like doing Hamlet. You have to commit a whole lot of time because there are so many levels on which the play works and works beautifully and profoundly. But if you ignore any of them, they all suffer. Yeah. It's very, very unified and integrated writing and brilliant for that reason if you do it well. And because they had done it well on both of the both of those stages, New York and London, I think having them there, having Vivian Lee in that in that show was the only possible other choice as far as I'm concerned. The only uh, performance in it, in fact, that, that I think is maybe a little weaker and a little disappointing is uh, Stella. And I believe she was nominated for and won an award for 
it. She won the Academy Award for this. Yeah, but it, she's just not quite as compelling as some Stellas I've seen over the years. Frankly, that's been on stage. I don't think I've ever seen another film version. If there is another one, I've seen a couple that were made for television, and those Stellas were very strong. The, the one I was going to mention, yeah. maybe you saw it on uh, with Jessica Lange and uh, uh, Alec Baldwin uh, and John Goodman. Diane Lane played Stella and and was excellent in there. I think part of the part of the problem, like, I, and I'm, I'm happy that she won the Academy Award for this, and I like that the, the film got snubbed for Best Picture, so I'm glad it got as much acknowledgement as it did. But Sorry, I, it's um, so laughable to hear that. But when got snubbed for that, when, this is one of the there are two films on our list here that um, there's there's this uh, Academy. I'm, I'm sorry, I've forgotten what it's called, but in the states they designate certain films as being culturally, socially, uh, and technically of such profound importance that they've got to be preserved forever, basically. And uh, Streetcar is one of those films. The other on the, this list, of course, is The Last Picture Show. In other words, they are significant historically in the history of film, which is related to the stage. Of course, we all know a Streetcar Named Desire is now kind of sacred in, in the theater world, too. Like it's the, it's one of the biggies. It's, it's one it, of the ones that they can actually do every few years, even it, though it's old. It, it, I mean, it's it's sacred no matter what. I mean, it's, it's just... Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it will outlive me in its importance. It'll be like looking back at a Shakespearean play in yep. 200, 300 years. I think going going back to the like the Kim Hunter point you were making, because I was watching her performance very closely this time to sort of see, because I, I have had that feeling too, that she gets kind of swallowed up. But you have yeah. to keep in mind, this this may be Brando's best performance. And, and yet he can share the screen well with the others. Yeah, this may be Carl Malden's best performance. Yeah. And, and this is Vivian Lee's best performance, as much as I like Gone with the Wind. And it's funny that a classically trained British actor like Vivian Lee is known for playing two of the most famous Southern characters in film history. <laughs> yeah. earned both of her well, authors. And I'm in the wrong hands, Blanche Dubois could be so over the top. She could that be a melodramatic mess. Yeah, a disaster. Same thing, I think, for the Stanley Kowalski character. He's so violent, you almost don't want to laugh. But I, I think there is, and we've been seeing, you know, that, that's the big joke that all the all the young method actors in New York uh, use the uh, the Stella uh, piece there for their auditions, and they basically do exactly what Brando did. That's for Stella, you know, they uh, they get so deep into their their anger and their feelings and all of that stuff. So it's become a little bit of a, a cliche. So I I think it's it still is. Is tough for that scene um, for anyone playing that scene but Brando is the one who set that that moment yeah. that's Stella and and then the I've always depended on the kindness of strangers are two of the most famous lines of all time and I yes you, everybody knows that they're coming now it's like to be or not to be in Hamlet uh, and how is this going to be done and I, I just think the, these were the people that that set that forward whether it was film TV or stage that we were going to see a, yeah. a version of it. so it's, no doubt it, it's it's just such such a great movie in a list of great movies that we're talking yeah. about my, my points just distribution i i know i'm going to be losing sleep over it because it, it's so oh. tough with with a list like this but yeah I, I think we would just end up just gushing about this movie is there anything else you want to say about streetcar named desire only that bizarre though it might seem i think that it's the second best film on our list and it's it's one of the best movies ever made so that should tell you how much i like the other one but you already knew that yeah i i, I knew that no, it's brilliant I, it's it's th wonderful everybody should see a streetcar named desire This was her wedding night. 
Where was the man she had married? Who were these hoodlums? Hold her legs. Outstanding cast. Charlton Heston. Janet Lee. I could love being corny if my husband will only cooperate. Orson Welles. Co-starring Joseph Kalea, Akim Tamirov. With guest stars Marlena Dietrich, Zsa Gabor. What are you trying to do? We're trying to strap you in the electric chair, boy. Only the offbeat original creative powers of Orson Welles could bring you so suspenseful, so gripping, so different a drama of love threatened by vengeance. Mike may be spoiling some of your fun. Mike? My husband, yeah. And if you're trying to scare me into calling him off, let me tell you something, Mr. Grandy. I may be scared, but he won't be. Of a struggle between titans. You framed that boy. Framed him! Of a manhunt like nothing you've ever experienced. Oh, cut now. What did you do with her? Where is my wife? My wife! We now move to 1958, and Orson Welles was now the man. I mean, it had been many years since Citizen Kane, for generations, was considered the greatest movie of all time, certainly greatest American movie of all time. And so we're in 58, and people are dying to to work with him. But he's, he's working with Universal on a film called Touch of Evil. There's a tie-in when we re- review Ed Wood later on, where there's a scene where Ed Wood and encounters Orson Welles and they were comparing notes on how uh, the financiers for both of their films in two different leagues, uh, mind you, (laughs) Hollywood, uh, are interfering with uh, their creative process. And you're Orson Welles complaining about all this stuff. We get to that, like a lot of that was fictionalized. Like that was not, Orson Welles did not, Orson Welles' issue with the studio happened after the fact because he, he had a cut of the movie that he wanted released and and they would not release that version. So one of the things that I, I liked, and it continued on, but in the 90s, they were starting to uh, restore some classics, uh, re-release them in theaters, and they got Orson Welles' director's cut and released it in theaters. And so the DVD I have has both versions, both the theatrical and, and the special edition director's cut version. And, and when you asked which version to watch, I'd I, I said, let's watch the one that Wells wanted to have happen. So yes, I, so his complaints with the studio and sort of continued after the fact because he, he was still very much an independent-minded filmmaker at a time where they didn't really have much independent cinema. And it, this Touch of Evil is a really, again, another to me quite fascinating film noir. It's described on IMDb as a stark, perverse story of murder, kidnapping, and police corruption in a Mexican border town. We start off with up until a point this was the most extraordinary and i think it still should be given credit 
as the extraordinary opening shot of the film, which is, a, I believe, approximately eight or nine minutes long, and it's all one take. And it yeah. takes us from following a car from one side of the border, and, and, the then border the car, and it leads to a car exploding. And it just happens that this, this Mexican agent, played by Charlton Heston, and his new wife, Janet Lee, famous from, uh, the, from Psycho, they have just gotten married, and they're about to uh, go to Mexico. Mexico and have their honeymoon and this is interrupted because he happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and his nemesis besides some some gangsters on um, the, the Mexican side of the border who kidnapped Janet Lee basically is this rather over-the-top and gruff detective and racist detective played beautifully by Orson Welles himself Beautiful and in its ugliness, yes. Beautiful in its ugliness. Yeah. I think this the black and white photography, getting back to the theme of the show, is so, so good in this movie. And there, there's just, there's scenes which are actually legitimately horrifying. I like horror movies. This isn't even a horror movie, but there's a scene where Janet Lee has has kind of been dropped off for her own protection in this, this hotel. And the head of this Mex- Mexican gang is caught onto this and sent these younger people to just make all these prank phone calls and they scare and they torture her and you feel that how vulnerable she is basically in the middle of nowhere as this goes on i i I really like the detail the detail of the climax of the film is something else i mean how when we kind of find out how orson welles character has stepped way over the line but he has ways of making sure that he doesn't get caught and and how that how that transpires i mean it was so integrate intricate and so well thought out this is a, a well well made film well written well put together yes there is probably I, I know where you're going with this and I am total in total agreement there is one performance here which takes me completely out of the movie fortunately it's a very small part of the film but this side of the road hotel where Janet Lee is, is, is left there's this guy working at the hotel who's supposed to be some yokel I don't know what and I I really don't know what this actor was doing and why Wells didn't step in and stop this guy from performing the role the way he did. It was like something out of a Roger Corman, uh, which in this case is not high praise uh, for me. And <laughs> no. it's the worst of Roger Corman acting, which is so ridiculous. The guy's like running for the hills and it's like something out of a really bad cartoon. Whenever yep. that guy's off screen, perfectly fine with the movie. But and I, I don't know, I must have mentally blocked that part off because it's been a few years since I saw the film because surely I noticed it when I saw it in theaters in the 90s and when I've watched the movie since take that out completely and I I think you have a pretty darn close to there's no such thing as perfect but close to perfect film noir and really interesting Texas uh, Mexican border town type of a film as well that's my I almost like it as much as a few points against it but I almost like it as much as Citizen Kane I think it is attracting yeah. to Charlton Heston playing a Mexican, but Charlton Heston I felt was a little bit more toned down. Like sometimes he yeah. was playing this for the stage in his film roles and he's not doing his Charlton Heston deep voice thing and over enunciating. I felt he was playing a, a real character here and interacting in a legitimate psychological manner with those he, he encountered. So yeah. those are the things that I'm reaching for for criticism. So I'm not just gushing about touch of 
people, but I, I really like this movie. Yeah. Well, I, I like it too, and I agree with you. Heston's work is interesting because it's different. It is unfortunate that he's cast in the role. At the time, it was common practice, of course, cast white stars as... Of how things were done at the time. Yeah. But, but now but it's... Un unfortunately, it looks... It also, to add to the criticism of, of Heston, it seems to me as though he didn't even try to make this character seem Mexican. He was just called Mexican, therefore he was Mexican. Played but, it as an American. But wasn't he born in Mexico, but then he educated yeah. in Texas? But, but given a lot of the things that the character says and does, it feels like the character believes he's Mexican. It only seems to me like Charlton Heston doesn't. It sounds like Charlton Heston you know, is his voice. With... He's one step short of Mexican. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, I um, would be afraid, particularly with some acting choices. I mean, it, it did progress a bit to, since the yeah. 30s, 40s acting, but I still would not want to see, and, and, and you did see this maybe a little bit more in Westerns where you would have Caucasian actors playing uh, Mexican bandits and they'd be going, see, like, senior, like the Taco Bell commercial almost. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's the thing that maybe Heston was trying to avoid is if, if he tried to do a dialect, he would be kind of racist and disrespectful in that way. But he neither sounds like he's from Texas nor Mexico. No, that's, you know, that's, that's part of it. There are, there are quite a few Mexican characters in this film. And I don't think you could level that criticism against any of the other actors whether they're actual, actually of, of uh, Mexican background themselves as people or not. I don't think any of them played their characters as though they were American, and Heston did. Um, so, you know, for me, that's a criticism, or that's that's a that's a, an, an additional problem. There are, early on, I felt like this was a bit of a derogatory vision of Mexico, and I still think so in a way. I mean, on the whole, it's pretty clear that Orson Welles had some really strong things to say about racism, Yes, and that was brave back then saying those things was brave when you were saying them about white people to white people so but no one would ever accuse orson welles of being a coward that's for sure never um, and uh, uh you know so kudos for that but it it seemed like shots of mexico are always filled with garbage in the street that's not how you show poverty that's how you show garbage and for, for me that was a little bit of a problem of course you mentioned the opening sequence when we have what feels like a bird's eye view and when what happened to me okay and this is 2020 i've seen how many uh, pieces of film footage shot with drones and you can do remarkable things. Well, this feels like it was shot with drones. <laughs> decades before drones were yeah. invented. Yeah. This is using other kinds of equipment and ladders and so on and so forth. And it's a remarkable feat and it must have been incredibly expensive and difficult to set up. And of yes. course if anything went wrong, they'd have to reshoot so much because it is a continuous shot. And um, it was also so shot I found that amazing. Sorry? It was shot on location. It wasn't yeah. shot in the studio. And as I understand it, this is how the story went, they shot it a few times, but the the, the Sun was about to come up, which would have been a problem. And they, he, he just wasn't satisfied with it. So he said, you know, this is the last one we're doing. And said, I, I don't care if you make a mistake with your lines or anything like that. The only way I'm going to be, we can fix that in post-production, but the only way I'm going to be mad at you is if you stop and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells. Yeah. So, and then they went and shot it and it was the final time they shot it. That's the one they used in the film. And it's remarkable. It, it and... was it, it led to where we are now. If it wasn't for that, there wouldn't have been like that nine-minute opening to the movie, The Player. It's The Player. Then we wouldn't have had Children of Men. 
with those long one take scenes then which led to Birdman which led to the technology which led to the extraordinary 1917 which is an entire film where most of it looks like it's all done in one shot if if Wells hadn't taken that step there wouldn't have been that ambition and it's interesting to me that it it has been 1917's a British filmmaker but it's been a lot of the Mexican filmmakers who have who have tried to uh, outdo that over uh, <laughs> yeah. years. So it's really well done, though, too. Yeah. So it, it doesn't feel as though you'll be watching very first time someone tried this. It feels no, a lot it, more... It, it works now. Yeah. It works, yeah. Uh, another, another point in this film when... Well, throughout the film, I was struck by just how amazingly well Wells uses light and shadow. And that, that of course, is also credit to cinematographer. It's uh, a very powerful way of not just setting a mood, but making state and they are made so very well particularly about wells's own character you know shadow is kind of about the some of the the later scenes that whole sequence at the end when they're uh, uh, shooting around the pump jack and the bridge and so on there's so many absolutely remarkable shots camera angles and and uh sequences of the uh, shots uh, shots of the pump jack itself so much of Vargas waiting, uh, mm -hmm. the different angles on the bridge, um, they served to set the, they made me feel on edge, which is so appropriate with the action that's going on. I'm trying not to give away too much because it's well, a, yeah, I, I this a remarkable story. ending and a big surprise. Yeah. And it's it surprised in some ways, including in how it's shot. And I hope people go to see it and don't have a preconceived notion of what they're going to see, except yeah. for me to say it's so worth seeing. It's, it's uh, um, filmmaking I, I, at its best. I, I think with all six movies, not, not a ton of people now have seen these movies uh so some of them maybe have seen streetcar yeah i touch of evil is not one that i i think enough people have seen at least from the younger generation and it, it is you, you don't know what's going to happen towards the end there's real oh. danger in it and i i think the the brave move as much as like the kind of the um the portrayal of the the, the mexican town is of uh, being quite dirty or, or whatever but i think it is a city where there's a bit more crime it was might be the justification but there is no doubt who we, we may think we know who the main villain is in this movie but the spoilers but the mexican character is way out of his league he he is a kind of a poser next to yeah. the major villain and the major villain is the american law enforcement which would have been just so revolutionary because we're still talking about police corruption in 2020 and in the late 50s to be talking about this and the cover-up and and all of the work the and racism and all of the work that charlton heston's uh character has to do to stop a bad police officer from covering up a wrong is extraordinary which um i yeah i i i, I re i'm glad i wasn't sure if you would like this movie or not i know you don't always like charlton heston and i, I wasn't sure how you would feel acting wise how do you feel about wells and and lee I want to get your take on them. Oh, yeah. Uh, she is so very convincing as this strong... Well, early on, she comes across as arrogant, uh, but she's a very strong character. And in those 1950s, scenes... Remember, 1950s were 
women were playing yes. lives. I mean, that that was great. She's she's in a dangerous situation. You mentioned once she's as good as kidnapped. And what's her response? Well, the typical 1950s uh, film response we would think is she would break down and cry or just be terrified. Yeah. She is not. I'm she, terrified for her. She's, but yeah, she's but yeah. she looks him straight in the eye. She is tough as nails when she needs yeah. to be. Yeah. And and later we see when we see her vulnerability, it becomes we feel with her so much more strongly because she doesn't wilt at the first sign of lightest danger, and she's already shown us that. So when she's afraid, we're afraid. Very very <laughs> powerful, revolutionary, almost yeah. Yeah, a, a, an unusual kind of character in that era, yeah. and and she plays it plays the character extremely well. Honestly, I think hers is is maybe as strong a performance as Wells's, and he is just brilliant in this role. Mm -hmm. Well, he's brilliant in almost everything he's done, he, he did, but he's so hateable and and I, I want to say deliciously so. And then at the end, okay, I don't want to give something away here. I really do think people should see this film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have to he's, spoil the end. But when he gets to the point at which you think in most movies, his character is going to sort of fall apart, he takes a moment and then he takes another step and in a way becomes even more dangerous. Yeah, yeah you, uh, you Realize that the depth and the, the strength of this character, as hideous as, as he is, the strength of this this character is found, and that's how Wolf plays him. And if you want to know for young photographers or cinematographers out there, if you want to know how to use a low angle shot, the low angle shots of of Wells. The way he shot himself in those sequences is 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 something else. Yeah. And and odd angles too. So often yeah. it, it feels as though the camera has been turned about uh, fifteen degrees, um, tilted about fifteen degrees, and that's really unsettling when you're watching it. It's well, here's the guy who can affect you. Who basically allowed for ceilings to be part of a set with Citizen Kane. So he was never afraid to move his camera around. He he uh, he would not have a static camera and uh, or nor static editing for his films. Yeah, one of the great visionaries and uh, yeah, I'd say this is my second favorite of his film. I would I would say watch this 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 longer Orson Welles approved version of it. If you're interested, if you love this movie, it's worth watching both versions, but if you're to only watch one, I'd say this is director's cut and I think this is the touch of evil Tony Bennett's cold, cold heart was on everybody's hit parade. Elizabeth Taylor was getting married. Boys wore ducktails. The police action in the Far East was Korea. And Anarene, Texas, like other small towns, is approaching the end of an era. I heard about the ball game last night. 121 to 14. Must be pretty near record. What you think he'd do if he found us? Shoot us, probably. But Mama, it's a sin, isn't it? Unless you're married, you know I wouldn't do that. <sighs> Don't be so mealy mouth. Come it out! Come it out! You gotta be men like the rest of them. Ain't none of you pretty enough to be women. You boys can get on out of here. I don't want to have no more to do with you. I've been around that trashy behavior all my life. I'm getting tired of putting up with it. Oh, quit prison. I don't think you did it right anyway. Just remember when a dream. Honey, 
lie. I'll stay with her all night one of these nights, too. She done promised. You won't either. Yes, I will. Why shouldn't I? I'm not sorry for you. You'd have left Billy, too, just like you left me. I bet you left him plenty of nights. Whenever J.C. whistled. So long, buddy. So long, buddy. Be careful. I'll take care of the mercury for you. I'll see you in a year or two if I don't get shot. You wouldn't believe how this country's changed. I reckon the reason why I always drag you out here is probably I'm just as sentimental as the next fella when it comes to old times. Old times. Anarene, Texas, 1951. Nothing much has changed. In 1971's The Last Picture Show was the announcement of Peter Bogdanovich as a major, major filmmaker. He tells a story which is uh, based on uh, the work of Larry McMurtry, a very important novelist, and a generation later was uh, responsible in many ways for the movie Brokeback Mountain, which also was uh, revolutionary at, um, and another movie that you could argue should have won Best Picture. The Last right. Picture Show is set in a Texas town. It's set in 1951 in a group of high school students. They come of age in this bleak, isolated North Texas town that's slowly dying, both culturally and economically, and the symbol of which is the town's movie theater. And the title is called The Last Picture Show, and it's it just represents a change and, and the move from innocence to adulthood. I've watched this movie, I think, three times. Each time I get something different out of it, and each time I like it more and more. I I watched it in preparation for the previous show that we had. I almost didn't want to watch it again to prepare for this one because the third time it was it was like I got it. I didn't get it the first two two times I watched it, but this third time that's a sign of a great movie, by the way. If it's rewatchable to the point that it gets better and better each time you see it, most have are not that way when you watch them three four times, and it it really moved me and I. I don't know if I'm just in a different stage of life now than when I first saw the film or or what, but it, it's a beautiful film. Peter Bogdanovich now had a choice. He could have um, not even in Technicolor. He could have had this in color, color. He could have shot the film, but he went with the 50s. He went with nostalgia. He went with black and white. Perhaps the values of the town are black and white. Uh, there's many reasons to shoot this movie that way. Mm. I I also uh, I wanted to to mention in there with uh, Bogdanovich. Uh, his follow-up film, also also in black and white, Paper Moon, which I I caught uh, a few months ago, sort of during, during the early days of COVID. I, I hadn't seen it before, and I, I was just like, I kind of wish I was alive in the early 70s to see, <laughs> to be like, this guy is the future of cinema, because both movies touch me deeply. I don't know how modern audiences would take the pace of the last picture show. It's a bit of a sit. It's not not that long a movie but you it is several years in the lives of these characters and it kind of moves at the pace of the town but it's the perfect pace 
for this movie. The I encourage of- people to to not see it when they're tired. Of course, yeah. I'd encourage people to never watch something when they're tired, unless it's just a throwaway something that they can fall asleep in front of. You know, like to golf. Uh, like watch that. golf if that's how you feel. At the same time, well, it's you know when a movie can encapsulate. When a story can encapsulate in its first couple of minutes mm-hmm. everything that it's about, show it to you, not tell you, but show it to you, yeah. and then still have you intrigued the whole time, you know it's a great story. Right there is the reason why people keep watching Hamlet. Everybody knows how it's going to turn out, but we just need to get to the end, get through it. It's the experience of getting there, despite knowing everything about what's going to happen. Well, if you watch this film closely, you'll see in the very, very first few uh, shots this stark, sparse, dead town that looks like the surface of the moon. It's it's so dry, it's dead, it's dusty, and it's in black and white because it must be Mm because that makes everything look even more dead. And it isn't just the town that's dead; it's most of the ideas of the society at the time. It's most of the lives in the town. They are, and these desperate young people are trying to find life. Not just the desperate young people, sorry, these desperate characters are trying to find some semblance of life because they're living on the surface of the moon. To me, that's what the first few shots say. And that sums up an awful lot of what the film is about. And yet I was riveted through the whole thing. Again, I, I, I was alive then. I didn't see it when it first came out. I saw it a couple of years later at the wonderful Place Real Theater on the U of S campus. Uh, it's now a lecture hall. They do sometimes show film. I think the film class is held there. Anyway, that's where I saw the last picture show. And and I remember being surprised that it made me feel scared. But then, you know, I was 20 years old at the time. So I guess it's understandable. Those characters were scared too. There was really nothing for them. It, it captures that moment at the end of high school. I, mean, I see it every every year. It doesn't matter which generation of, of, of kids you, you teach, but it shows up in a different way now probably than it did then. But once we're in the, the late stages of, of high school, there's this feeling you have to do all of this stuff because these are my last days of childhood and then I have to be a serious responsible adult as soon as high school is done but yeah. in that world I mean they those who are not headed for university are headed to work and and we see that with, with several several of the characters here that kind of theme work actually quite well in, in a lot of other pictures too thinking of two in particular uh, American pie and that's what it was called yes. and and um, Ferris Bueller's day off yes yeah the difference, though, is that those are ultimately comedies. This is a tragedy. Oh, it is. And that's what makes this feel more real and more frightening. And frankly, that's why this one is the really important one. I'm not saying don't see the others. Sure. Especially Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's fun, but this is more important. This one, the last picture show. There's so much to talk about with it. I, I mean, I, I feel almost overwhelmed. Like, where do we go in our conversation? Because it's almost like there's a whole series of stories here. Yeah. We're, we're following yeah. T- Timothy Bottoms as the actor replace Sonny Croft Crawford and we see most of the story through through his point of view and he was on the football team but they were an awful football team and that's where the movie starts is everybody in Texas in the town giving them a hard time to have a bad high school football team in Texas is it's it's worse yes. than Saskatchewan I mean yes yeah it's, it's more than a religion in that state and we, we see that right away and like he's one of the one of the the football players and sort of one of the stars 
stars in there, but uh, and he's, he's dating this girl he's not terribly interested in, uh, and he's in, I think more interested in his friend's girlfriend. His best friend is played by a young version of the dude himself. Jeff Bridges. Yes. <laughs> in one of his earliest roles, I believe he got an Oscar nomination uh, for, for the, this movie. Well deserved, but I think everybody, <laughs> almost everybody deserved an Oscar nomination. Back back when they had the, uh, they didn't really have the Ensemble Award, the Screen Actors Guild Awards at that time, this would have been the film to win the Ensemble Award. I mean, it's. Oh, absolutely. It's, but these are all people that are young and hungry. You, you try to get this cast together now, and it would cost you. At the time, this was the Dead Poet Society of its of its uh, era. It um, the the girl that all the boys are interested in, uh, the virginal girl next door, who is incredibly manipulative, but uh, mm -hmm. nobody knows because she's a Texas Southern belle, sweet as pie. Is the film debut of Sybil Shepherd, and yes. Sybil Shepherd is is very very good in the film. And this character is Blanche Dubois when she was in high school. She, I, I, I think it'd be easy to d dismiss her performance as not being uh, that much of a stretch. But I, I think it's actually one of her better performances, film, television, or otherwise. Yeah, she's terrific. Ellen Burst. Bernstein, I just talked about The Exorcist. I, I just, I just love her. I mean, she, even if she's in a bad movie, she's not bad, and she's, I, I, I sort of juxtaposed her to Brando in the last episode. She's a deep method actor, believes in Stanislavski and all of that, but she's professional. She serves the character and she serves the story of each project she's in. She's not demanding. She's not a prima donna. She's not obsessed with herself. And that's been the case early in her career, in the middle and and still to this day, she she plays Lois Farrow, who's Sybil Shepherd's mother, um, and she's finds herself in fairly unhappy marriage. She has will sometimes sleep with this random guy who just shows up uh, in town, but you know that there's this long lost romance from when she was basically her daughter's age, like this opportunity lost, which is referred to. And that also comes across in a character named Sam the Lion, who uh, he owns the restaurant and he also owns um, the kind of the bar, billiards bar parlor that that's in the town it's it's part of what's keeping the town going and is played by ben johnson who has a nine minute performance and won the academy award for best supporting actor and this last time i watched it when i i, I guess i hadn't done the research to to know that he had won the oscar for it i thought gosh that guy's barely in the movie like what what on earth so i was i laser focused on criticizing that move and i watched it this time and I'm like this performance is the heart and soul of the film nine yeah. minutes or otherwise yeah. and he deli delivers a monologue for the ages i don't know why this yeah. is you know studied in, in 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 film schools as how to deliver and how to shoot like bogdanovich's cinematography his direction for the age he was the restraint in that is so beautiful and that monologue is beautiful and that's where we find out that sam the lion had this relationship with the ellen burson character and but 
he could never provide the stability and the money that this man that she settled for could. And then we watch the younger people making pretty much the same mistake because this JC character, Sybil Shepherd, uh, she wants all the best things in life and thinks she deserves them and she's grown up with them. And her high school boyfriend, played by Jeff Bridges, is not going to bring her that, nor is uh, later on when she switches gears and while he's away, while Bridges is away, she you know hooks up with uh, with Sonny, with Timothy Bottoms. But, and impulsively they, spoilers on this, but impulsively they go and get eloped. And <laughs> it's actually the funniest part of the film, though. Whole especially when they get home so much so much goes on there but yes. uh dad puts a stop to that in a big big hurry and uh just her life is is somewhere else yeah. but she's giving up on love but the the other half if you want to think of the the heart and soul is the performance i've left to last is cloris leachman who is the middle-aged childless wife of the football coach who uh is never at home there's no love in their marriage whatsoever and he sends he, he sends sunny to to drive his wife to errands and appointments because he can't be bothered to do these things. And and there's this really, really unique love story that develops between Sonny and and Ruth Popper, the Chloris, Le- Chloris Leachman character. And we see what happens when Sybil Shepherd comes along and he forgets about this woman who loves him. And and, and really, I, I feel that he loves her too, but he's seen, you know, the other side of the fence, like the, oh, the most popular, beautiful girl in town wants to pay attention to me, even though he can't see that she is using him. She is using him make her parents upset and for many many other reasons and i the heart that's where my heart was i guess as far as the tragedy this time was the cloris leachman character when she's left alone and and we're left with this beautiful final scene between the two of them which is just remarkable Cloris Leachman did it apparently in in one take. She wasn't allowed to rehearse it. Bogdanovich wouldn't let her rehearse it because he wanted it to be raw. And and she said, I can do better. I can do better. He said, no, that was perfect. We're going to print that. And then you're going to win an Academy Award. And that's exactly what happened. She won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress uh, for the role. But that's, I'm probably only describing about a third or two thirds of this movie. And I've been talking on and on for a long time and not letting you get a word in edgewise. And this is the movie I agree with everything you've said. Oh. And that and more. There's there's so much symbolism in this film. We haven't even touched on that. You you mentioned that. Uh, sorry, what's his first name? The lion. Um, Sam. Sam it's the lion. Movie. Well, right next door to the theater, and here I am back at the opening shots of the the film. Right next door to the theater is a vacant lot that looks like it's the edge of the world, and that's that sums up his life, doesn't it? What's the next step for him? Falling off the edge. That's what happens. There's nothing else. And and that's the kind of thing that happens for every other character. The the gym teacher's wife lives in this house. In my memory, at least, any of the shots of of her home show zero vegetation. Nothing is growing around that house. Mm-hmm. And of course, inside, she has no children. Her life is barren. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can add so many different layers of, of choices in this film. Things that are visual uh, symbols, things 
that are powerful reminders of of the emptiness of these lives. But there are also some really genuinely funny moments, even if in context they're not as funny because there's always that that other side to them, that dark side. But uh, I forget which character says it, but one of them is talking about being 40 years old, especially for you now. Talking about 40 years old, and he says, it's kind of an itchy age. That was uh, Ellen Burstyn, Ellen Burstyn's character. Uh, right, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, of course, then I had to rewind a little bit because I'd missed a bunch of dialogue because I was busy laughing mm-hmm. and thinking of uh, several other people I know who are 40 years old this year. And, you know what? Like, uh, <laughs> I'm 41 now, but when you're in your 40s, you do stupid stuff like yeah. have a podcast <laughs> where you give away your movies. <laughs> Yes, yeah. it's um, there's a lot of this is very true to life too. No matter where you are, it's universally true. If you live in rural areas, the youth will feel that intense need to leave. They can't leave fast enough, and some of them still don't leave because they're terrified to leave because the only thing they know is this tiny little world. Uh, and it's a terrible time, and there isn't a right answer. I mean, some of the people that I know didn't leave and should have. Others left and shouldn't have, and of those, some found their way back. Again again, uh, but not all. And ones who didn't find their way back are miserable or dead, frankly. And some of the ones who didn't leave, same result. They're miserable or dead. And none of that is any good. But it's uh, uh, it's a very difficult time of life. These people in the distance of rural Texas, they were far from anything. In it. And uh, this film captures that so beautifully. I think some people might not realize just how uh, accurate that is. I mean, it's also a, it's a serious movie. There is some levity, but it's also a beautiful film. One, there's uh, there's lots of interesting other people that I'd like to mention in here, but this <laughs> just just because I got a kick out of him, I'll be reviewing uh, National Lampoon's Vacation in an upcoming episode. This was the the film debut of Randy Quaid, and he plays this super rich Texas kid who's from one of those families, generations of money. He invites Sybil Shepherd to this. This party where they're all um, skinny dipping in the pool, and 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 it kind of represented her her battle with sticking with the the rich people or sticking with uh, her her boyfriend who was a blue blue collar. He was headed to be yeah. a blue collar worker, and she dumps all the rest of them and goes off with uh, to, to to meet these new people and. She finds herself attracted to this this one guy uh, who's an older man who has this a lot more sexual experience, and that's that's kind of talked about in there too. And so, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. Just you, some of you are like, oh, cousin Eddie's in this movie. I mean, you know, when you're uh, when you're when you're looking for uh, things, at least for my yeah. generation, seeing cousin cousin Eddie was uh, is a highlight. You know, the the poor man, I as understand it, is uh, has had his problems the last uh, ten to fifteen years, but uh, I still think he's He's a pretty good actor. So uh, here's a little bit of trivia. I could not remember for the life of me what the last picture show actually was. So I every time there's a shot of the theater, I paused it to double check what was on the mark. First on the marquee is Spencer Tracy in The Father of the Bride, which I still haven't figured out. I mean, I, I don't get the significance of that particular film. The next two make a lot of sense as they're westerns. The second last film was Jimmy Stewart in Winchester 13. And the last, last picture show was John Wayne in Red River. And maybe, but I mean, some of this I'll be speculating, other stuff I kind of know. Jimmy Stewart was 
in contention to play um, Sam. Oh, okay. Uh, but he committed to a TV show at the time, and he couldn't get out of it to to shoot that film. So Ben Johnson, Red River, Ben Johnson was uh, a stuntman extra in it. Okay. Yeah. Father of the Bride, this is the one where I'm stretching things a little bit. I think that kind of represents the JC's types of characters who okay. admired Elizabeth Taylor and wanted that kind of a world for themselves okay. and wanted to get out of the town because they knew that they couldn't have that kind of life to be that kind of young movie star if they stayed in uh, in the town. Yeah. Uh, knowing Bogdanovich, he, so. he did his homework in 1951 yeah. at what movies were playing this month in this particular time in the history. And so what would be a logical triple feature there? And it's uh, it, it was a different Western in the in the novel, as I understand it. It, uh, it was an Audie Murphy Western, B-movie Western was the last picture show. But Bogdanovich, uh, being the film historian that he is, he wanted a really dramatic, important film to play uh, for that last night for the, the film version. And Red River is a classic. Uh, yeah, Last Picture Show is great. I'm afraid you'll be a little bit mad at me with the points business here. <laughs> but it's the balance of six quite strong films that I think will be uh, will be the thing here. So I, I will revisit it soon. I'm interested what the fourth sitting of The Last Picture Show does to me. Check out if you haven't seen The Last Picture Show. Tim Burton, director of Batman. Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands now takes you to a completely different world. The true story of a Hollywood legend, Ed Wood. And action! He made movies like no one else. You want to keep moving? You've got to get through that door. Ah! Perfect. Perfect. Do you know anything about the film production? Well, I like to think so. He had an eye for talent. I met Bella Lugosi. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. You flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. You're flashy. They want that. Okay. But they want professionalism. So Nick Fanninelli without losing naivete. What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. Brave robbers from outer space. Brave robbers from what? And he had a secret he couldn't hide. I like to dress in women's clothing. Panties, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. You don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. How can you act so casual when you're dressed like that? All right, everybody, let's finish this picture. Touchstone Pictures presents Johnny Depp. Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, and Bill Murray in the true story of an unforgettable filmmaker. We're making another movie. I got the Church of Beverly Hills to put up the cash. How do you get all your friends to get baptized just so you can make a monster movie? And his legacy that will live forever. How do you burn this off? Shake his legs around. Looks like he's killing oh! This is the one. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film. Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. Hello? As I said, uh, I reviewed Plan 9 from Ever Space, which was voted the worst movie of all time, directed by Edward D. Wood Jr. 
And when I talked to Tim Hildebrandt about it, when we reviewed it, we referred to this Tim Burton film from 1994, which is a biopic of Ed Wood and is just an outstanding film. This up until the time I saw Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber of Fleet Street, this was my favorite Tim Burton film and my favorite Johnny Depp performance. And it's almost like I like those guys when they go into the R realm. This was the first R-rated movie that Tim Burton ever did. And it's about the worst director of all time. And a lot of it focuses on how he made these movies leading up to uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space and the motley crew of characters that he got together to make these films and how he stumbled upon the once great uh, universal uh, monster actor, Bella Lugosi, who was the first filmed, uh, maybe not the first filmed, but the famous Halloween mask version of, of Dracula and how he comes across him late in his career uh, when he's kind of washed up and he just sees Bela Lugosi as the biggest star in the world and he ends up working with him on several of his movies towards the end and becomes good friends and a caregiver for Bela Lugosi who developed a pretty nasty drug habit and had just had several, several problems in his life when he developed this relationship with Ed Wood. Some of that stuff is highly dramatized. I've looked at some information about like what really happened. He's a guy who had a vision and was wanting to create and wanting to make movies and was blind to the fact that they weren't great. His idol was Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and he modeled his approach on well Orson Welles at this age got all this together and made Citizen Kane so I can do this for sure even though he had no real knowledge of how to make a proper film. The movie has some serious moments but I, I think it ultimately is a comedy. My first time seeing it, uh, it was during the months, similar months to now in in July, I watched it at a friend's cabin mm-hmm. and I, I heard of all of the Oscar hype and stuff uh, around it but I didn't see it in theaters and the sequence after he has made his first film and he manages to get a studio head to screen it and the studio heads are are and we see the journey of how difficult it was for for Ed Wood to make this movie the studio head and these others are watching this movie and they're just they have no idea like what is this this makes no sense this must be so and so playing a playing a prank on me. Oh yeah, and he got that kid to come. Out. And then they start laughing at this thing. And there's something I found just insanely funny about, sadly funny about yes. how serious Wood was in and the effort he made to make what he thought was a serious movie. And these guys are just laughing at it. So and, other, and don't you feel a little bit guilty for laughing yourself? Yeah, in a way. But yeah. I was a teenager when I watched it, so probably less guilty than I feel now. <laughs> I can understand how difficult it is to make a, yeah. a movie or a play happen and for it to, to turn out great. But mm-hmm. And it showed. I laughed at that, too, again, this mm-hmm. time. It's a funny. I felt guilty again. It's built up. It's funny. Everything's done with a straight face, and that's why it is yeah. such a funny movie. There, There's a sequence. There's a lot that leads up to it. But due to some issues with not being able to pay the bills and to make this, I, I believe it was the Bride of the Monster movie that they're trying to make, there's a sequence where they steal this uh, giant squid out of uh, out of the studio. They break in, steal it, then they go out to an actual swamp to shoot this 
the climax to their film and then drag Bella Lugosi out and freezing in the in the middle of the night to shoot this thing but they forgot to steal the motor that goes along with it and so then yes then Wood is telling Lugosi oh, oh just just act and pretend like it's attacking you or whatever it's a hilarious scene beautifully acted by by Martin Landau as Lugosi who is tired and but then he gets high and then he has all this energy and and then he and then he's wrestling this this fake squid and it just looks absolutely horrible. Like, oh, 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 as, as it's happening, and I'm just on the on the floor laughing. Martin Landau is worth mentioning, as is of course Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. But Martin Landau swept every award that there was that year. He was the crowned best supporting actor before long before the Academy Awards happened. This is where oh. I I have a little bit of a problem with this. I have no problem with his. His performance he's amazing it's remarkable what he did or I, you were getting ready for a fight here i was <laughs> here, here's here's my problem with it in the same calendar year sitting in the same category at the academy awards was samuel l jackson in pulp fiction playing jules winfield which i think is one of the greatest performances of all time and Samuel L. Jackson had to sit there and watch Martin Landau win all of it and I love what Landau does and maybe it's a touch more subtle than what Jackson did but Pulp Fiction did not work without Samuel L. Jackson's performance a lot of people talk about Travolta but it did not work without Samuel L. Jackson's performance maybe you could argue Ed I Ed Wood doesn't work out without Martin Landau's performance, but I still think there's a lot of other stuff besides Landau to cling on to. The set design, the costume design, mm-hmm. that incredible makeup job by Rick Baker turning uh, Martin Landau, who didn't really look a whole lot like Bella Lugosi, into an older Bella Lugosi. There's so much great stuff in here. So yeah. my criticism is more of the award system, perhaps, than anything else, but it just happened that these two great performances landed in the same year. 94 was an amazing year for movies, by the way, but yeah, it's it's uh, his performance is something else because it's both like several different things. It's funny, and I've talked about the funny, but it's very serious, like the depression, the drug use, uh, the way that this man's life is is running as portrayed in the film, and it actually is scary. Now, I think whether the scene happened or not, it works really well dramatically. Where Lugosi has a gun to his head, and and Ed Wood is trying to talk him out of killing himself, and in there, Lugosi says, "But Eddie, you could." join me too and then puts the gun to to depth's head woods woods head there it's 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 big it's melodramatic it's operatic but it is a very effective and scary scene and those are the the levels to to land landau's performance that i think are are uh incredible and so in many ways it was the role of his career and and he had some other really great roles along the way but yes he did uh, but i think this is the the, the greatest of them and this is the most surprising I I had personally never seen Martin Landau in anything in which he's so brilliantly funny. And by brilliantly, I mean it's brilliantly portrayed. It's, uh, well, his performance is everything you, you've said it is. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Tim Burton and Johnny Depp together, we, we almost just take for granted that it's going to be a great combination. It always is. And so you, you could argue that Depp's performance is very strong too. And it is different from a lot of his other roles. Um, and yet it's, it's kind of textbook uh, Depp because 
because he loves playing unusual characters. This is definitely an unusual character. Mm -hmm. And he loves making every every character very unique from everyone else he's played. And he's not as successful with that all the time, but he certainly is successful with that here in this uh, this film. This this was the one where I started to... I, I feel like I was late to the party with, with Johnny Depp. I mean, people were talking about from Edward Scissorhands onward. This guy is something else. I think it, I needed to see this performance before I believed it. Um, and it, it did get lost in all of the praise of Martin Landau, which is mm-hmm. just another thing in here that th- this movie was more than just Martin Landau's performance. I think Depp did a really great job. It was a crowded best actor field that year. Just, I mean, I, I named the people... I could name five people that weren't nominated for Best Actor, and you're like, how on earth did they not get nominated? Then I named the five people that were nominated, and you're like, oh, that's how they weren't nominated. Yeah, I mean, okay. it, yeah. it, was, it was just one of those years, and but Depp certainly should have been a runner-up for a Best Actor nomination for this. I, I want to find this quote because it's just so perfect about how Depp decided to portray Ed Wood. He, it, was, it was a line he used, I had heard it before on his episode of Inside the Actor Studio. Johnny Depp said that his character of Edward D. Wood Jr. was a mixture of the blind optimism of Ronald Reagan, the enthusiasm of the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> and Casey Kasem. <laughs> And yeah. if, if you think Ed Wood and you think of those three things, you totally get what he was going for. That's how he approaches every role. He just grabs three images or three inspirations like this. And this one really worked for me. It just, how could you not love this guy who is so passionate about what he's doing? You want him to succeed. And like the high watermark for this, the, the melodramatic, but I think earned moment at the end is the screening to Plan 9 from Outer Space, the worst movie of all time according to some not according to me but according to tim hildebrandt as the uh show turned yeah. out to, to, to work that was a sad loss and goodbye to that movie i found it a good home though so <laughs> but i i do have to admit ed wood is a better movie than any movie that, that ed wood made, ed wood made uh, yeah. as it happens apparently the opening sequence to the movie costs more money than all of ed wood's movies put together so, yeah. <laughs> okay yeah yeah, uh, um, yeah. yeah. And, and, well, and, uh, let's see this is a great ensemble cast we have young patricia arquette comes in as, as kind of uh as depp's uh second wife who's a lot more supportive yeah. of him sarah jessica parker apparently the, the 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 actual woman wasn't happy with how she was portrayed in there but she somebody who kind of sees uh the absurdity and stupidity of some of the stuff that they're doing and she calls him on it and she has problems with like ed wood was apparently a, like a cross dresser and she has problems with that and so she walked away from her relationship but like the real actor says that she raised money to help Glenn and Glenda and some of these movies get made and she wasn't given credit she was portrayed as like the negative Nancy in uh, in their in their company Jeffrey Jones controversial guy but he plays this uh, one of these fake mind readers who would came across and ended up being in Plan 9 from Ever Space and some of his other movies uh, George the Animal Steel plays Tor Johnson who is uh, Tim and I talked about Tor Johnson as far as big, interesting-looking horror movie face. Couldn't act to save his life. He couldn't understand a word he said. George Animal Steel does a nice job in, in it. Um, and understand what he says. <laughs> yeah, but I, I looked into it. He did oh, actually a lot of work to get this this role. He wanted it to get to be exactly right. But yeah, yeah there, there's just a lot of interesting faces in here. Uh, Bill that, Murray. You know, Bill Murray. Apparently, that was a uh, that role had no lines. Um, oh, he had one line. It, it's based on 
on an actor uh, who appeared in Plan 9 yeah. Outer Space. But Bill Murray showed up and then he started to just improvise as he does. As he and does. I don't know if it was true that this particular actor wanted to have a sex change operation and went to Mexico and it wasn't successful. But uh, there, there's a scene where they all get baptized to tr try to get money from this Baptist church to get yes. Plan 9 to Outer Space. And Bill Murray is so funny in that sequence where... <laughs> holds his plugs his nose as he's being baptized and uh yeah it's it's, it's just uh it, it to me it's the best of tim burton the best of johnny depp martin landau is the performance of his career there isn't a whole lot to criticize i guess other than perhaps you know the the screenwriters are very good screenwriters they've done a lot of biopics i think they they wrote this in about six weeks i'm not sure how much fact checking they did like there's a scene where ed wood runs into orson wells as i alluded to in our uh, touch yes. of evil review and a lot of the stuff that you know, they were talking about with Orson Welles, that was completely made up. Like Orson Welles didn't, it was actually, he wasn't upset that Charlton Heston playing a Mexican was, wasn't a studio decision or anything. Charlton Heston actually was with the project and, and Orson, and, and wanted Orson Welles to direct it and got Orson Welles involved with the film. And it wasn't like Orson was told by the studio he had to have certain people. It was afterwards oh, right. interference and like details like that, that, some stuff that wasn't necessarily true. You know, uh, Wood's ex-girlfriend also di didn't like the fact that like they portrayed Wood as a little bit more of a saint than he maybe was he, he had a pretty vicious alcohol addiction as well and there's maybe a cut scene or something there where where he's he's passed out drunk but they focused a lot on on Bill Lugosi's drug addiction but not as much on uh, on on Ed Wood's uh, faults but again it's it, it's well, a pretty tight biopic it's not a three hour Gandhi epic type of thing here and no. it's a comedy yeah and, and it does a good job of being what it is yeah and it would probably be less successful if it tried to be more than that yes of course that said it's it's not of bound importance some comedies can be i mean in our last session we talked about mash for example yeah. some comedies can be of profound importance this one couldn't have been so it's a good thing they didn't try to make it that way mm -hmm. it's hard to find something to really point to and say this is a problem in the film uh and that's one of its strengths right no matter what no matter how you feel about it afterward mm -hmm. whether it's great filmmaking or not you have to say i enjoyed that and entertainment is is the first the performance isn't it so i mean besides you know, the film is very successful and and uh it's not a surprise i i don't think i'd agree with you that this is Tim Burton's best film, but it is a very good one. I don't think I'd agree with you that this is Johnny Depp's best film. I mean, in fact, yeah. I know I wouldn't, but it's a very good one. And uh, all in all, I liked it a lot too. Um, it's um, it's a black and white movie. Why? Well, in in this case, it makes a whole lot of sense in terms of what the story is about. Right? In in a way, you could argue the subject is the medium in this story, in a sense, and the subject is all of these black and white films that were made by Ed Wood. So to have the whole film in, in black and white seems like a logical choice in terms of the story. In the other cases, it seemed more like an ar artistic choice, less so in this one. Mm -hmm. But then again. If you try to impose a whole lot more on this story than should be there, it's going to fail. It's going to fall apart. It doesn't fall apart because it doesn't try to be anything more than what it is. Apparently, uh, another reason, like besides the time frame in Hollywood that uh, it was made and the types of movies and the subject and all that, they if they had shot it in color, they weren't sure how they were supposed to shoot in color Bella Lugosi. Believe it or not, I think all stock footage, all footage of him is 
in black and white. So as it was, it was a challenge for Rick Baker to, uh, he won the Academy Award. This was the other Academy Award it won was for makeup to make Martin Landau look like an older Bella Lugosi. But there, there, there was no source material what Bella Lugosi looked like in color. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think that was part, it was also <laughs> part of the decision besides the fact that Burden wanted to duplicate some of the uh, things that Wood did with visual images, which were straight out of Plan 9 and some of his other movies to successfully portray Lugosi, they had to shoot it in black and white as well. I guess um, that's as good as reason as any, right? <laughs> as well, yeah. I was going to say, like, that we're talking about black and white films, but also I think a strange sub-theme with a lot of these films is how great some of the acting is in these movies about characters which lend themselves to be quite big and could dangerously turn into grotesque or over-the-top performances, but the actors that they found in each of these movies find the right balance. And uh, that was something Landau really wanted to portray Lugosi as a human being, not as a, a, a Dracula caricature. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's like he tries to do that with every character in the story. Mm -hmm. um, the one that I think is least successful that way is the portrayal of Dolores. Yeah, she, she does feel that. And uh, honestly, I'm not sure if that's a problem with writing. I mean, there wasn't a lot she could have done with those lines. Part of the problem might be the actor's choices in portraying that character. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of, of Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is her voice, mm -hmm. which to me is rather shrill and harsh. But given the character that she was playing, that helped to make it work. You're glad when she's no longer there. Mm -hmm. For him, and he gets to the, the contrast of, of the Patricia Arquette character later on, where she knits booties for whoever it is, her her grandpa, or whoever's it in the in the home at this in the hospital at the same time as Lugosi is, and and when when she meets uh, Edward, whether that's how they met or not. I mean, yeah. also the way that Lugosi and Edward met is not like it's portrayed in the film, where he's he's testing out these. Uh, <laughs> Uh, these coffins and and Wood comes in thinking that he's at a funeral home and is seeing the dead body of Bella Lugosi, which is kind yeah. of a I, I will give Sarah Jessica Parker credit when she has her big outburst. They're in that meat factory and they're having that ridiculous post-production party and celebration and she just freaks out at them. I, I again, I, for whatever reason, I laugh at that sequence. You people <laughs> well, are making, okay. you know, I it, they, they are, but they just look so, they, they think they're making high art and she points it out to them and they still don't get it. And I think there's, there's yeah. something really, really great and funny about that. I'm not sure that, uh, again, Ed Wood is as strong as a whole film. I'm not sure what the hesitation is as some of the other movies we're talking about in this rather strong list. I think if this was another list, Ed Wood perhaps might might be at the top of it. But I, I really, really love this movie as well. And yeah. I, I'm willing to forgive the fact I'm happy Martin Landau got his due uh, before he died a few years ago. And uh, I saw we just came up on I think the four years or five years he died the exact same day uh, as George A. Romero who is f famous in the horror genre and then Lando's great role was in playing a man who was famous for the horror genre as well uh, from a generation before so Lando was also famous for a billion television roles for a few years and for probably about a decade he was in every television program everyone I don't care if it was yes. if it was a big show big TV series he had a role in it Either he was uh, recurring regularly or he'd have a guest spot on it. But mm -hmm. Martin Landau's name came up every oh, night. Yeah. 
has a television. prolific um, yeah. uh, film resume and television yeah. resume, and probably in fact, my- he probably ended up on on an episode of The Streets of San Francisco, which starred Carl Malden. I'm who sure we they were earlier. I'm yeah, sure yeah. they worked together yeah. many times. Um, yeah, I mean, my, if I was to choose a second favorite Martin Landau performance, even though it's not terribly funny, but it's in a Woody Allen film as a little bit of a transition to our next movie, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and he plays the really dark half of that movie and he he's really good in that uh, in that film i could be mistaken i think he was up for an academy award for uh, for that uh, deservedly so in this story with him and, and angelica houston which i'll talk about in another day when i of course review crimes and misdemeanors but it, it just shows the range of the guy that he could play this type of a role but he could play such a dead serious type of character in in in, in that movie so i think we both well we we're liking all these movies so that's that's yeah that's what yeah, okay. yeah. Well, i'm gonna say that before the last one i like all of these movies it's gonna be There's- tough When this mild-mannered reporter started covering the celebrity beat, he had no idea what he was getting into. Now he's about to collide with four of the most unusual people he's ever met. A sensuous starlet. And I remember I used to lay on my bed naked and watch my body develop. An out-of-control movie star. I love you! An aspiring actress. What are you doing here? And a supermodel. Oh, my God. Okay, well, we should get out of here. Are about to take him on an unforgettable ride. What were you thinking? The tabloids will kill me! They're all part of a world where everyone will do whatever it takes to get famous or stay famous. Excuse me, the skinheads are here. Who put them in with Rabbi Kaufman? Hey, where are the bagels? The skinheads eat all the bagels already? Let's take this party inside. You will not be sorry, trust me. You mean all of us? (laughs) Miramax Films presents a classic American comedy about fame, fortune, and frenzy. You're unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Your show's just taken off. You look so great. I've become the kind of woman I've always hated. But I'm happier. Kenneth Branagh, Judy Davis, Leonardo DiCaprio, Melanie Griffith, Famke Jansen, Joe Montaigne, B.B. Newworth, Winona Ryder, and Charlize Theron. And you can learn a lot about a society by who we choose to celebrate. Celebrity. Would you sign this? I use your exercise tape. You do? So do I. But I exercise to it. In our last episode, we reviewed Bananas, one of Woody Allen's uh, earliest films, his third film. And now we fast forward from uh, the early 70s. His 1998 entry is a movie called Celebrity, where Allen made the bold choice to shoot this celebrity movie set in contemporary times in New York in black and white. And it's basically what we're, we're following around an entertainment reporter who wants to be a novelist and maybe he wants to be a screenwriter played by uh, Sir Kenneth Branagh, very much in the Woody Allen type of role, but played by Branagh, which is kind of interesting, and he he follows the fortunes um, him as he encounters this world of celebrity everywhere he goes, and in a parallel story uh, we take a look at his ex-wife, 
played by the great Australian actor, the great Judy Davis. Been through her own path to self-healing, which then leads her to uh, encounter uh, Joe Mantegna, who is this TV producer and gets her first working with the talent on air. And then she, later she becomes a local TV personality and she starts to have her own fame as a result. And it's we kind of see one partner who has a lot of confidence and starts to lose things. And then we have another partner who has no confidence and starts to find part of her identity and part of her strength in some ways. And a few scenes where uh, they collaborate together, usually at a movie theater, interestingly enough. Um, <laughs> and like all Woody Allen movies, this has such a great cast. And people before they were famous start to show up in this movie. It, it has something like six Academy Award winners and another four or five Oscar nominees. People didn't know Sam Rockwell was. He He's in the background in here long before Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. There's a, a, a one-scene appearance by Allison Janney. A great scene. Yes, yes. I read up on some trivia about that one because there's a whole lot of stuff going on in that scene. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute. But we the the featured players in this movie are just, just wonderful. Charlize Theron, very early in her movie career. And she, she had said she was a model and she said she'd never want to play a model and as I understand it uh, Woody Allen begged her to play this role and she agreed at the time I and again I don't know if she would now but to play this role but she she's fantastic in her little sequence absolutely this was, this was the first film after the explosion of fame that was Titanic for Leonardo DiCaprio so the coup for Woody Allen was getting DiCaprio into this film a year after where DiCaprio plays this most smug arrogant young Hollywood movie star you can imagine where Brana goes on this tries to sell this screenplay to him and DiCaprio humors him through uh a night of just pure debauchery. Debauchery oh, <laughs> would be the right word for it. And DiCaprio just, you can see, just has so much fun. Uh, we didn't necessarily know at the time, but he's really making fun of his image at that particular time. Yeah. It shows people weren't completely believing in DiCaprio at that point. Now I can see probably why he chose the role. It was a very smart, uh, smart decision. Magician David Blaine. There's a sequence where they're at, a, at the fights. They're at a, a boxing match david blaine just showed up on set because he was a friend of dicaprio's and he's seen sitting behind dicaprio and brana just because he happened to be on set that day and he, woody allen asked him if he would be in the shot and he just, he said yeah and he just sat in there and makes this this kind of random appearance in the movie and like at the time quasi famous person the scene that well, the, but it's perfect for the the subject of the film which is celebrity it is yeah. and i think the scene now if we show this to audiences that takes on a whole new meaning is we see the change in, in judy da davis as she is as she has become this this confident reporter and she's going and she's in this room talking to all of these billionaires and socialites in new york and and celebrities and and then i'm like holy crap there's house and jenny that's right she's in this and you're spotting all these people who have these cameos and it is great yeah. She takes her camera to the other side of the room and spoilers, folks, but who does she end up interviewing but Donald Trump? Yeah. 
So we're watching that and we're just like, oh my gosh, there's there's Donald Trump and he has some, he has one line about buying St. Patrick's Cathedral as his next big plan or something like that and turning it into a, a Trump casino. It's kind of a self-deprecating type of line. And so- And it uh, would have been funny if he had understood that and delivered it properly, but frankly, he's the worst thing in the movie and the most boring celebrity in the film. Yeah. But I but mean, it's about two our, seconds, five seconds maybe. Our, 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 we hate on for him but i think it's, it's really it just adds a different level layer to that scene but the fact that the great allison janney before the west wing or anything else came along before she won a million awards is in the same room as donald trump doing that scene directed by woody allen uh, yeah. in a movie starring kenneth Branagh, as well as like a million other people some more we'll mention in a moment is is just uh, it's just unreal one piece of trivia kind of a silly funny thing is so this is according to Allison Janney. Neither she nor Woody Allen knew the proper pronunciation of the word triplex. And after she did two takes and she pronounced it triplex, and Allen told her to find the right pronunciation, she asked Donald Trump. And huh. Donald Trump said it's triplex. And then that's how she pronounced it. Weren't They weren't saying, saying it right. So Woody Allen as a rare director didn't know it. Allison Janney as the actor didn't know how to say it. But because of the nature of it, Donald Trump actually <laughs> helped Allison Janney Jenny with her line delivery. <laughs> So, like talk and about proper it. pronunciation yes. <laughs> anything is possible yeah along with as far as young amazing actors in this movie Charlize Theron has a great sequence there but I, I do want to highlight Winona Ryder mm -hmm. I think I'm okay now going on the record because I've reconciled it with myself that I, I think I have some sort of crush on Winona Ryder <laughs> Uh, I've talked about this as far as when I was talking about the Little Women, the the, the latest Little Women movie. That I like Sarasha Ronan a lot, but I I preferred Winona Ryder's take on it. And I recently saw this other movie, uh, Night on Earth, where she plays. She was really young in the movie and shot in '91 or something. And she plays this cab driver, and she almost steals the entire movie. It's her long scene with her and Jenna Rollins. She was great in The Age of Innocence. She's great in so many things. And yeah, I, she's very good. This wasn't a stretch for her. She's playing a hungry young actor in New York who uh, ends up having an affair with the Kenneth Branagh character, who foolishly leaves his his serious girlfriend, played by Femke Jansen. And but you see this as a theme throughout Woody Allen movies of an older man going and chasing a younger woman and ultimately getting burned in a predictable way but Ryder is very good in it Jansen's also very good like the, their breakup scene is epic Brana has yeah. written this this novel he chooses the moment where he's just finished and he only has one copy of it to break up with his girlfriend as she's moving into his apartment and guess what happens to the novel <laughs> I won't say anything more than that but this was but it is a beautifully shot scene too oh just oh, what happens to the novel music everything yeah, uh, does use black and white very well in his films. And the other thing I appreciate is his sense of humor. He, they, they're going to this this movie premiere and saying, "Oh, it's oh, it's another snobby, pretentious movie shot in black and white by some some director to make it." feel important it was self-aware yeah. alan in there yeah. about his own pretentious choice to shoot the movie in black and white so this was not a very well received even though i think there could have been an argument for judy davis to get an oscar nomination for this but it, it like he was very hot in the 90s but this was not one of the memorable woody allen movies from the 1990s for whatever yeah. reason but i i really like it but I, again I, I seem to like all of alan's movies uh and i kind Me of too. feel bad that i put it up against some pretty tough movies 
movies here for this show, but I, I think there's more good than bad. But I, I haven't let you get a word in edgewise here, but like, how do you feel about uh, celebrity? You've, you've just been kind of touching on it. There's more good than bad. Overall, it's a really good film. There are a lot of great things about it, including performances. And, you know, Judy Davis's is brilliant. But something is going on in the film, which makes it feel like it's, well, this is good, but it's not quite as good as. And I, mm -hmm. I found myself comparing it in so many different ways to so many different Woody Allen films. But a couple of exceptions come out of it. The performance by Theron, mm -hmm. you there is zero that you could find wrong with that. That is like watching a director's dream come true. This performer has got it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a perfect portrayal. And before people took her seriously. I mean, now yeah. she's the serious, important yeah. actor, but I think they saw her as a bit of a, a blonde bombshell at the time and, yeah. and nothing more. And and, and he, DiCaprio he, is another he, one. And that's how they saw him too, as a blonde bombshell yeah. instead of a serious actor. And Alan knew that these and, these yeah. two had a lot more going than, than that. And of course, Judy Davis is brilliant. So explain to me why apparently a whole lot of critics just dumped on her performance in this film. I think they may I be. Mean, well, uh, some criticized Brana, and I can see this as being trying too hard to impersonate Woody Allen. I, I got there, that. There are so many quirks in his performance, and he does them well, but they don't quite work because, frankly, they don't work because he's not Woody Allen. No. You know? And and uh, he doesn't look anything like Woody Allen, doesn't sound anything like Woody Allen. So when he tries to take on the mannerisms, it, it feels insincere. Brown is a brilliant actor, but this is not his brilliant part. I, I think I was more distracted by it when I saw yeah. it in theaters. Yeah. The, and maybe even the second time, this is this is the third time again I saw this one. I, I, was all, I was ready to have my guard up and to be like, oh, okay, this is the big thing I'll be criticizing. It didn't bother me as much this time around. Maybe it's just because I was expecting but Judy Davis's performance. Yeah. I mean, one I, I actually went to look. What is this critic criticizing? They were saying she did a terrible job of, of uh, portraying Woody Allen. She wasn't. She wasn't trying to. She was portraying a role, the most real character in the movie, and I think the most important character in the movie, because she, at the beginning, has no use for celebrity. She has a great deal of respect for art and she feels insulted. She has to stoop to the depths of, you know, bonding over celebrity. Mm -hmm. And by the end, Jeez. that interview with Donald Trump is the ultimate. That character is the happiest at that mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. and it's the moment at which she has sunk to the absolute depths She's mm. completely lost sight of everything that mattered to her and become yeah. an empty shell of nothing. And yet she's happy. But yeah, she does it know. so believably that it that's why it's horrifying, you know? And, and I, I uh, think I think part of the thing was that's that they the most brilliant thing in the film, Judy Davis. They they ex I think she delivers. I like I like what she did. They expected a lot. Like most of the critics, I think back in 1992 with husbands and wives came out. She was up for an Academy Award for and they were totally on board with her and then she did two other Woody Allen movies in the 90s Deconstructing Harry which I'm a big fan of and I'm a big fan of her performance in it and then the year after that was was this uh but I think they they were starting to see it as kind of a version of perhaps the same character I think there was more screen time and more depth given to her in celebrity than maybe even in husbands and wives and uh, and certainly in Deconstructing Harry if I was to pick a scene that again I love I find it 
it absolutely hilarious. But if they're wanting to pick at something, that scene where she becomes unglued in the movie theater, like when when she spots Brana and she starts screaming in the middle of, of the film and calling him names, and that might have been a little bit much. But that's it's in the writing, and yeah. she's approaching the tone of the scene absolutely the right way. And she's very good at playing these neurotic New York women as written by by Woody Allen at that time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I think, yeah, she, she, she steals the movie from some pretty, just an all-star cast and uh, just amazing one, one, one person after another here. And you're right. She's way better than Brana and her story in some ways, even though there's, there's colorful incidents in, uh, in Brana's, her arc is a lot more interesting than his, I think. I guess if I was to criticize the screenplay a little bit, it's episodic. We just have, which this, isn't necessarily well, a bad thing. Not always, but, but it, it's this broken up section. Brana gets into this adventure with Melanie Griffith, who I forgot to mention at, at the beginning oh, yeah. of this movie yeah. start. So it gets into this strange sexual whatever with Melanie Griffith. And then there's a sequence with... It is hilarious, Mar- though. Mar- Mar- sequence with DiCaprio. Sequence with, with Shirley Theron. Versus the, the Judy Davis story is, you know, kind of following her to meeting Joe Mantegna, who I think he does a quite a good job in his performance. There's that, that scene where she's thinking about getting uh, breast implants as well. And then, and then this, uh, this live tv crew comes in and and then she's horrified like like i mean a lot of it was very obvious setup and yep. and broad comedy so some of those things are i i enjoyed but i'm not sure they were like as brilliant as some other stuff that he he came yeah. up with i mean this is maybe a three-star woody allen movie as opposed to a four-star woody allen film but there's there's a lot more to like than dislike and so uh um, well, there is um the episodic structure isn't necessarily bad but what makes it problematic is that so many of them are trying to be they don't really tie together one mm-hmm. is trying to be like this story that alan told better in another film another is trying to be like that story which alan told better in another film in terms of the themes and things one that i i know was the midlife crisis angst well you know what woody allen could not do a better job of midlife crisis angst than he does in hannah and her sisters yes seeing yeah. it here it falls flat and it feels cliched and it feels like he wrote it in a hurry and i felt that way about a lot of the scenes even scenes in which brilliant things happened or sequences in which brilliant scenes happened like part of the sequence with charlie's theron uh in many many woody allen movies a character is really just obviously deliberately trying to get into uh, uh someone's pants yes and this sequence with theron that's what he's doing but even in that context this line this struck me as being one of the worst bits of writing woody allen has ever done he's brilliant with dialogue this isn't so i went back and i actually listened to it three times so i could quote it precisely every Every curve in your body fulfills its promise. If the universe has any meaning at all, I'm looking at it. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I want to vomit. That, that feels like the lines from Bananas, because that was that was almost back to the amateurish adolescent stuff he did. There they might have worked, yeah, but here they don't. And maybe well, that's because Brana is saying them. I feel like really juvenile lines. Yeah, um, it's stand-up comedy. And I know he started there, but this is 30 years after. I almost wonder if he kind of put the two he had two screenplays together one was the brana story and one was the judy davis story and he thought okay well what if i just change it and make them exes and then they have a few scenes where they they meet up together put the film together and deal with the general theme of celebrity worship i mean he he's when you do a movie a year that sometimes you yeah. have to you have to do that and maybe that's what happened but yeah it, you are it's not terrible as you said it's a three not a four 
man. Go to bed. Yes, I want my clothes out here. You shut up. You're gonna get the law on you. Stand get up. beat on a woman and then call her back because she ain't gonna come. You're gonna have a beat. Listen, you're I hope they haul you in and turn a file on you. Yes, I want my clothes out here. You stink. Before I even mention points, I want to say one more time, all six of these movies are good films, entertaining films, well-made films. They all deserve to be seen. Yeah. In in some cases, deciding, well, this one will get one point less and this one will get one point more was partly arbitrary. In a few cases, I had to look at the spe specific details and ask myself, okay, which of these criticisms do I think are really important? Which of these praises are really powerful? It was still hard. So you want to do them in order, right? I, this is a tough one here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've been struggling with how, 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 how this would go, but all right, we're going to start off with our, our first film. We talked about Key Largo. How many points did you give Key Largo? I gave that one eight. And then Streetcar Named Desire. Am I allowed to give half points? It's never happened. If you want to, I'll allow it because this is the third time you've been on the show. So you're you're now a regular guest. So Thanks. you can be a trendsetter as so, well. If you want to give half points, uh, we'll allow it. Yeah. And to explain, I had one point left over. Okay. If I'd had two points left over, it would have been one each to the two that I think are the best. But it was only one. Yeah. So I gave them each point five because I didn't want any greater separation between the two than <laughs> one point. Okay. <laughs> okay. So streetcar named Desire, 12.5. 12.5. All right. Then we go on to Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil. I gave that even balanced 10. If they were all tied, each one would have 10. So. The Last Picture Show, a movie you hate. I, know, I just know you hate oh, it. 13.5. You know what, Hurt? I like Last Picture Show and Streetcar Named Desire so much, I wanted to give them each closer to 20. Mm -hmm. That would not be fair to the other films. Yeah, because this, yeah. this is a strong group here, so... Yeah, yeah, it is. And Again, I feel like I need to start fixing things so that I have a couple duds in, in every group here. Because <laughs> each show, well, the last last five shows have been painful in, in, in that way. Uh, well, how strong is this group? Up the show, if, so. if you ask me to make a list of the 10 best movies ever made, I would be hard-pressed to exclude either Last Picture Show or Car Named Desire. I'm pretty sure they'd still be on my list of 10 best films ever made. Uh, and they happen to be on the same show. so. Um, and I, I, I think, too, they're both better than any of the, as great as some of them are i think they're those two are better than any of the others that the two of us have talked about together okay Maybe that's saying a lot because you know i loved some of those films too yeah ed wood how many points did you give ed wood i gave ed wood i've lost ed wood there there he is nine and celebrity and that leaves poor celebrity with only seven and i feel a little guilty about that I think it's better than that, but I think no matter what, we're going to be feeling guilty about having to say you know goodbye to any of these movies. But here's where I landed. It would be a cheat to go ten points for every movie, <laughs> and that's not what I did because I'm still partially control freak. <laughs> <laughs> completely up to my guest then it's just whatever my guest is thinks is the bottom becomes the bottom so it actually yeah. worked out that i did three-way tie for three of these uh 12 points and a three-way tie with the other three at eight points in that yeah. total that's, that's credible very yeah so uh, and again this one was a tough one for me i'm starting off with key largo i i love key largo i it's just uh every few years i want to see it it feels like a movie to also watch on kind of a, a rainy Sunday day. Um, yet it's it's dark in nature as well. It's I I really like it. I gave it twelve. It's one of the ones I gave twelve points to. So so it 
Its grand total is 20 points. Streetcar Named Desire is also up there, 12 points. Uh, I, I agree with you. It's it's just a masterpiece. And uh, with your 12.5, that gives it 24 and a half points. Touch of Evil is the other one that I gave as many points as I could to, 12 points. I I think it it should be up there with Citizen uh, Kane as, as another one of Orson Welles' classics. And it, it's one every time I revisit, I, I'm excited. I, I, I saved it till towards the end of of this because I was just so excited to watch it again and it, it never fails for me. So with your 10, it gets 22 points. And and so I, I, I really, really appreciate the last picture show. There isn't a whole lot to criticize. It's in a way it's an old fashioned movie, but it has to be an old fashioned movie. Uh, yet it was basically at a revolutionary time for cinema in the early 70s. And Peter Bogdanovich, uh, I think this is the movie that he'll be remembered for, oddly enough, even though it was so early in his career. Even though, like, the Paper Moon, check out Paper Moon. I mean, that's just, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of this heartbreaking movie, but also just uh, just brilliant. Um, uh, another black and white film. But uh, I, I think if I was pressed, I'd actually say I like that one a little bit better than Last Picture Show, which might be sacrilegious, but... I gave you points to Last Picture Show. Uh, so with your 13.5, that gives it 21.5. Then Ed Wood, again, I... I just I, I think it's it's my second favorite Tim Burton film, second favorite Johnny Depp performance. Martin Landau gives a career performance. It looks good. Every aspect is there. I think it's funny. I think you could show it to uh, I, I, uh, a modern audience and they're still going to get something out of it and, and not perhaps be uh, I hate that word bored, but bored by it in the way that maybe some of the other movies that we've talked about, which might be harder sells for them. I, so I, I gave it eight points with your nine. That gives it 17. I gave Celebrity eight points. You gave it seven. Uh, it's kind of what I was afraid of. Is like, here we go again. Another Woody Allen movies at the bottom of our list here, but it was it was in with just such tough competition this time. So just to go through uh, the grand totals here, so the big winners, Streetcar Named Desire, 24.5 points, then Touch of Evil with 22, followed by Last Picture Show with 21.5, and then Key Largo with 20, Ed Wood has 17, and then 15 points to Celebrity, Tom Ratzlaff, for the second time in a row, a Woody Allen movie has to leave my movie shelf. So what am I doing with this one? Well, no. Where did it go here? Here it is. I think what is going to happen to this one is that it's going to be given a new paper cover. And onto the paper cover, you're going to write some documentary about Donald Trump. And it's going to go into the cupboard at the lake. It goes into the cupboard at the lake, and it's a documentary about... Donald Trump. Okay. Brown paper would be my preferred choice of, of the brown paper. paper cover. Brown paper would be, would be best, I think, but so whatever you have at the lake. a lot of work these days. <laughs> well, I, I have to build a, a stake for uh, my last show with Dan Boudet, so to uh, to put through the, the movie that uh, got the, the low, lowest total in the uh, in the vampire episode. So. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Oh. At least yeah. that's understandable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks again and, for uh, 
for being my guest for the third time. And we've got Thank kind you of again. a cool idea for the next one that you came up with shortly after the last episode where we're going to be looking at movie trailers. And we're going to look at movie trailers, okay. I think, from the past decade of films. And so it'll be a different type of episode for sure. And I think we're going to do this as a every once in a while as a series. So I think that's, that's going to be kind of a fun... You, you won't be sitting worried about which... What, what no. am I going to do? Poor Jason is sad when his movie gets eliminated. So, <laughs> and, and we're not restricted to movies that you have. It could They're be any, just, yeah, any but, movie trailer. You're picking, yeah, nope. you're picking ten, and yeah. I'm picking ten, and then we're going to compare our points. And I think uh, we have to figure out some of the rules, but then we decide on the ten that are worthwhile, and the other ten would be discarded or right, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And we'll have to discuss discuss criteria, but I do think one of them should probably be: is it a trailer that's likely to sell the movie? I guess we have some backup for that, don't we? Because we can look at whether people attended the movie or not, and whether it's appropriate to the movie. So we still have to have seen the movies. Yeah, that's fair enough. So that, yeah, you might be sending me some that I haven't seen. So that might be a little bit more homework yeah, for me. Maybe. But that's, and and that's there will good. be for me. You've seen oh, more well, movies than yeah. I have. Well, I've, I've <laughs> seen more. We'll, we'll do, but we'll, we'll figure yeah. it out. I've yeah. seen more yeah. movies back when they were first made. Mm -hmm. Like some of these we've reviewed now. We're starting uh, with the modern and going backwards. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But in, yeah. in this category, 10 over the last recent history, well, you've seen more movies than I have. Recently. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I have a stack of them for, for upcoming shows. And yeah. So the thing here is that as long as we've seen the movie, it doesn't have to be one from your collection, does it? Yeah. And we aren't even necessarily reviewing the movie. But we'll be reviewing the trailer. So we don't like the movie. So, I mean, that's the, it'll be a different uh, different type of show. Yeah. So just before I go, uh, again, check out Rank and Review, Larry Parsons Horror movie podcast and in the not too distant future he'll be a guest on this show uh, as well also uh check out uh my website uh, the shelf shutting movie show dot ca because we're in canada email me your thoughts on this show or any show at uh, my my email shelf shedding movie show at gmail.com uh, check out my facebook group for the shelf shedding movie show you can send me your feedback on that as well and check out this podcast it's on itunes it's on stitcher it's on google play i have it on spotify as well so it's uh, it's available in in several different formats if you would be so kind as to uh, give me a review and maybe give me a on itunes a five-star review then uh, more people will be able to discover the show and that would be that would be fantastic uh, until then keep going to the movies and not just the movies of the last 10 years. <laughs>